I got set seven and a half here. We'll see how this works. Just for volume. Uh, yeah. This is April the first and Beverly Hills Hotel, nineteen fifty eight. That's right. Also, you, I heard No, I, I'm pretty sure that that sound you hear now is from the uh, vacuum cleaner down the hall. It is, yeah. Okay, Mr. Marley, can you tell us how you first got started in films? Well, that'd be a pleasure, George, but first of all, uh, the name is Pev, not Mr. Marley. Oh, all right. There we go. How I got started in films? Well, let me see. Supposed to go to college? Didn't go to college because uh, I learned a little about the picture business before I started for college. And I said to myself, I think I'll do better in this than I will at college because of the fact that I don't want to be a doctor and I don't think I could be a lawyer. And I thought that the motion picture business was more or less an up-and-coming thing at the time. Well, I'm glad of that because I was right. It is a pretty big business today. Didn't you walk on the set of uh, a DeMille production of around uh, 1920? What was the name 1920 of 1920 or a little bit later, but uh, yes, one of the first things I, I uh, ever saw going on in motion pictures was I think uh, CB was making a added scene or a retake on a picture called Something to Think About. Well, come to think about it, I've had something to think about ever since. It's... Uh, it's really been a long time and a lot of water's gone under the mill in motion pictures since then. Did you uh, start right away as an assistant cameraman or did you go back to college? Uh, I went home and announced that I wasn't going to college and believe me there was quite a roar because my parents knew Leland Stanford and I'd already had my credits and ready to go to college out of high school and when I decided that I'd take a crack at this motion picture business instead of go to college I had to say that I'd only go for six months, and if I did all right, I could stay out of college. So evidently, I did, and, and never did, never did go to Stanford. But uh, it's been interesting to tell, say the least. Then you were rooming someplace where there was an assistant cameraman, weren't you? How did that go? You know an awful lot. Well, no, that went another way. I uh, went to a grocery store to get some groceries, and the clerk, who uh, I had an awful lot of money. He had three or four apartment houses and he even rented his rooms out in his home. Had a, had a second cameraman living in one of the rooms who asked him if he knew of any, <laughs> let's say, bright and up-and-coming young fellow that would like to be an assistant cameraman. So the clerk, after he gave me the loaf of bread and what, whatever it was, asked me if I'd like to uh, see what went on in motion pictures. And I said I would. So that's when I went down and watched this set uh, this uh, this stuff of something to think about being photographed. And uh, if it hadn't been for the old clerk that had apartment houses all over and happened to have a second cameraman rooming in one of them, and if I didn't happen to go to the grocery store that day to that grocery store, I might have uh, gone right on to college. Could you tell us something about your first jobs as assistant cameraman? Yeah, that's that's kind of funny at that. They used to focus by eye, and uh, uh, I never forget. They wanted me to hold a focus card between Wally Reed and Baby Daniels, who were sitting in a nightclub at a table. 
Well, these two big movie stars, and from my green way of looking at it, they were big movie stars. They wanted me to hold this focus card between them. Naturally, that was on the plane of focus. So trying to be a little gentleman, I held it uh, about two feet behind them, so I was immediately told to hold it further front. So I went around them, held it in front of them, and they told me, no, that was too far front. So I finally, in a very embarrassed, embarrassing manner, said, pardon me and excuse me and everything else, and held this focus card between these two big stars. Uh, and then I was shaking pretty badly, and uh, I guess I didn't hold it still enough from the focus on, because uh, everybody got a laugh out of it, and... Uh, Anyway, I began to catch on. That that film must have been The Dancing Fool. I don't know. I, I forget what one that was. That was just a little odd job that I was beginning to learn. Then there was a recollection that you had of Across the Continent in which Wally Reed played. Remember when oh, that, that was when I became a second cameraman. And uh, Wally was coming out of a, a tunnel in a, in a race car, and there was a train coming right behind him. And... It was a pretty dangerous stunt. We had quite a few cameras on it. And uh, i never forget the cameraman's, uh, on my left, his belt broke on his take-up spool. And he put a pencil in the wheel and started to crank up the take-up. And he asked me if I could reach the other camera, too. So I could barely reach both cameras. And I, I cranked both cameras uh, at once, uh, just about as far apart as I could reach, while uh, Wally Reed came flying out of this tunnel with a train right behind him. Uh, it was a difficult kind of a thing to do because uh, we cranked it at a slower speed to make it look a little faster. And, uh, well, it worked, but we had to think quick. Then there was a story about an ostrich. We weren't quite sure what film that referred to. <laughs> Gosh, you've got a memory about things. Uh, another little job I had once, that was when I first started, too. We went out to the Coston Ostrich Farm. And uh, they had a few cameras there, but they wanted to sort of herd these ostriches toward the cameras. So uh, the camera that I was with wasn't working in that shot, so we went out as a kind of a human barricade to kind of herd the ostriches in one direction. Well, I was sort of on the point. I was the first one out. And as quite a few ostriches come charging at you with their big feet flying ahead of them. It's uh, a little awe-inspiring, especially if you're the first man that turns them in the right direction. I, I kind of wondered then whether this was going to be all it was cracked up to be, being uh, being into the camera profession. I didn't think I was going to hurt ostriches, but uh, things were pretty flexible in those days. And how about the crocodile? Oh, gee. Well, in school I was a sprinter. In fact, I, I ran against Charlie Paddock. I say ran against him. I never came near beating him, but anyway, uh, I suppose I was a little bit, a little bit light on my feet. I was in a pit. In a DeMille picture, I think it was Fool's Paradise, and there was a crocodile in there. I remember her name. Her name was, uh, no, it was an alligator. And her name was Angelina. She was the biggest alligator in captivity. And this pit was about 35 feet long in an oval and about 12 feet deep. And they were trying to get Angelina to turn around. And finally somebody said, look out, Pev. And being it was muddy down there, I'm, I'm sure that I made a standing jump of 12 feet because Angelina lit where I was, and I lit 12 feet away, and there were no tracks between. Uh, but that's enough of that. <laughs> <laughs> What's this I hear about you uh, photographing the Ten Commandments? The Ten Commandments? The entire picture, the Ten Commandments. 
Well, I was kind of kidding on that one, but actually to hold the title before the first Ten Commandments, if I my memory serves me correctly, to hold the title, I think the mill had to make uh, a picture, perhaps just a one-reeler it was, that was to go out and be run to a paid audience in three cities. And uh, so he made this little picture uh, to be able to hold the title, The Ten Commandments, and being as I was then a second cameraman, he let me photograph it, and uh, anyway, it went out and was run to a paid audience, therefore, he was able to sense the title of The Ten Commandments, or words to that effect. So, uh, actually, there was a little tiny weensy Ten Commandments before the first one. I think that we should go back a little bit now, uh, Pev, and pick up uh, your first recollections, or your first impressions, of Cecil B. DeMille. Can you tell us how he affected you when you first saw him and began to work with him? Well, as of now, I can say he's practically my second father. I admire the man greatly, but you want to know about the first impressions. Uh, as you know, he was the top man in the business and to a degree a taskmaster, but this is what I admired in the man and always have and still do. He came to the studio to work. He worked, he worked hard, and he expected other people to do somewhat similar. He never seemed to mind a mistake. Uh, be a good idea not to do it again, but he never minded a mistake much, but he, he, he did not like foolishness or stupidity. Uh, uh, and when, it, when people were there to work, he liked them to be there to work. He had to invite people forward from the background to, uh, to come on in and take care of, you know, whether it be wardrobe or a chair or a prop man or anything. He liked people around because he was there and working all the time and incidentally still is. In fact, uh, I, I don't know of a man that works harder on a picture than DeMille. Beginning in 1924, you became... Uh, first cameraman for Mr. DeMille, is that correct? With uh, right. Feet of Clay and Golden Bed, Moldy right. Yesterday, Volga Boatman, and King of Kings, then The Godless Girl. Yeah. Which uh, of that group of films was your favorite, And would you say? King of Kings. King of Kings. As oh, a yeah. matter of fact, you've mentioned that as, as you feel your peak achievement among silent films. Oh, yes, yes, definitely. Yes. Now, following uh, The Godless Girl, let me see. Let's go back here a little bit. There was a story that you were Funny telling me. I married her. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> Lena Bescat. Yeah, that's right. I'm a little out of sequence here. Let's go back to 1928 here. And there was a very interesting story that you were telling about Power, a Pathé film with uh, Bill Boyd and Carol Lombard. Bill Boyd, Hop Along Cassidy. Yeah, that's right. Uh, that was a, uh, well, that was up on the top of Pacoima Canyon Dam. The dam was about 400 feet high, and the cement chute that uh, they were making, they are building this dam at the time, and if I remember correctly, the cement chute that went up like an oil derrick was 585 feet high. And we had to go up on a little, a little cart thing hooked onto a cable from mountain to mountain, and it was run by a little powerhouse that, well, you could hardly see it against the mountain. In fact, he ran it by colored markings on the cable. 
and at one time I was to be let down in a hurry uh, right down to the bottom and he had to know exactly where to drop this cage because of the many cables going in all directions holding this tower up and it was quite a squeamish feeling to be flying down completely out of sight of the man that ran the thing but on approaching the ground in, in quite a hurry we finally stopped oh just a nice foot and a half above the ground with the cable it was quite a spring in it because this big cable gave quite a bit on account of it being I forget how many hundred yards long from mountain to mountain but uh, if anything goes wrong in one of those kind of things that's all she wrote but it all worked out and it was interesting when you look back at it You were telling me something about the problems that were peculiar to silent films. Let's set that down, Ted. Well, they were different in two or three ways. For example, one was trying to get things over in pantomime that now we just talk about. I, in fact, I've seen DeMille sit down for an hour and a half trying to get a title out of a, out of a shot. By that I mean in the silent days when anybody began to talk, this picture would stop and on come a title of what they were saying. But to put things over in pantomime and, and so that you'd understand them, it was a difficult, difficult thing. In fact, uh, just for your own self, just try to pretend that it's getting late and, and you want to go home now. You'd have to start to yawn, perhaps look at your watch and nod your head in the direction of the door to get it over. Uh, it sounds easy, but it was uh, there were many difficult things to do. Of course, today they look funny because uh, we used to crank at 16, and well, I always cranked a little bit faster at 18, and now when you run them at 24, people seem to jump around and jerk around quite a lot. But uh, there were there were a lot of difficulties. When sound came in, Pev, uh, there were new problems too, weren't there? You were oh. telling me about. Uh, <laughs> tell us about the blimp and, you mean, uh, and dynamite. At first, talking at MGM, or almost the first one? Uh, it was dynamite. Well, first of all, the cameras had to be quietened down completely, so they built great big things like, oh, like big big ice boxes. And we got in there, and we shot through a glass, and these doors were closed, and you were in there. And, of course, they were very immobile. They were very hard to move around. And uh, uh, then with the mic flying around to get the sound, uh, the mic shadows and all were definitely a difficult thing and then sometimes we had to try to photograph them from two or three different positions at once which the minute you do that for one camera a backlight becomes a front light for the other camera and a cross light for one becomes a flat light for another camera and so there were a lot of difficulties until we got the the blimp as it is today or more or less as it is today so they were much more mobile you were uh, somewhat instrumental in the selection of uh, the theme song for that picture, weren't you, Pev? That No, How Am I to Know? Tell us about that. Oh, I don't know what I was doing. I just had a little to do with it. I'm no musician in any manner, but uh, I never forget when they, they played it first. Uh, Mr. DeMille turned around to me and said, What do you think of that? And uh, I, I, I'm a little funny about music. I, I like to be able to to hang on to six or eight bars that I can remember. And uh, I did suggest that any place in it they could 
have a little reprise again and 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 hang so that I'd have four to eight bars to hang on to and I think that's what they did and I got quite a kick out of that because I'm no musician in any manner now you started out uh, I believe after dynamite and put in a few days on the bridge of San Luis Rey did you not and then yeah, you switched over to another film you want to tell us about that oh that was an odd deal you know so much um, I was on a yes this picture bridge of San Luis Rey was a nice picture to photograph all pretty shots and all shucks Spanish stuff and this was you know you can you can work your head off on some things and they look fair and you can meander along on another one and everything comes out great and the bridge of San Luis Rey was a pretty type of picture to shoot at but I had to go uh, on another show with the uh, with the Duncan sisters and I uh, was asked what was the matter with the one I was on and they said nothing but you're going to have a problem on the next one and uh, well, there were some problems I mean uh, some things are hard to photograph and some aren't Were there any problems with the sound in uh, Dynamite, Pev? Well, being the first picture in the sound there, why, there were lots and lots of problems. In fact, uh, <laughs> i never forget one time in particular. Uh, in fact, I think we were recording a song. We had four cameras, two close-ups and two long shots, and uh, the microphones hang hung down low enough that I couldn't get them out of the picture. And uh, I signaled the sound man, but being one of the first songs recorded, he was going to have them as low as he wanted them. And uh, I more or less had to get the people's heads in. And I never forget the mill always used to say, and it still does, ready, right, camera. And if anything is wrong on the ready or the right, speak up. But don't speak up after he said camera. So he said ready and right, and I said, whoop, there's one trouble. And he looked at me and said, what is it? And I said, well... I either pan the cameras down and cut the people off at about the eyes and get the microphones out, or I pan up and get the people in and get about, oh, those long microphones in those days, about a foot and a half of the microphone in. So right then we had it out that the microphones had to be high enough to clear the people's heads. But those were one of the beginnings, the beginning problems. Everybody was doing their best, naturally. Now, if we skip up the years a little bit and stop at 1934, there was a problem with uh, a fog shot in Bulldog Drum and Strikes Back. Tell us about that. <laughs> you don't miss a thing. Uh, in Bulldog Drummond, uh, uh, he had to walk along the street and a this very foggy night in London. This is Ronald Coleman? That's Ronald, yeah. And uh, he had to bump into a telephone pole and say, pardon me. And it was quite a... Uh, difficult thing to do because if he could see the pole too well he wouldn't bump into it and if we could see it too well uh, it wouldn't look real so we made quite a few tests we fogged the thing in fogged the stage in and we made it more foggy and more foggy and more foggy uh, until it got so foggy uh, we couldn't see ourselves and as we were dragging along I mean uh, dolling along with him we thought with him because we couldn't see uh, we ran into the stage wall so we were pretty sure that was too foggy when we didn't know where we were going with the dolly and ran into the stage wall. But we finally arrived at one of them and it worked out pretty well. It was a difficult thing, though, to get it just foggy enough so you could believe it, but uh, uh, foggy enough so it, wasn't, it was pretty hard to see. 
Now, in these uh, middle 30 years, you made a string of pictures for United Artists. I think um, your report on uh, Roland Lee's direction of Count of Monte Cristo was very interesting. What did he used to say to the cast in order to get... Oh, I, I think uh, the Count of Monte Cristo, I think that was a, really a great show. I think it's still it today. In fact, I've seen it on television. Um, he used to be... After all, it was laid... I don't know, Count of Monte Cristo, I suppose, went back to the... 17th century or long in there, I really forget now. But he'd always say to the actors as they as they started, "Now don't forget, fellas, be these guys, 1620 or 1880 or 1802 or whatever the date was." He said, "Be these guys, be these guys," and I think they were those guys of those days. It was so important to make an actor be that part at that time. He was very good. I was graceful. Then you have a rather curious recollection of uh, Clive of India, which must have been completed in 1934. Clive did, of India. Did you work on that for a long time and finally finished it up with... Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> we finished the finish of the thing, which is funny. We finished it in the rain at dawn with a bunch of elephants. And I think the elephants were sick of the whole thing. And uh, <laughs> when elephants get tired of something, why give them room? <laughs> I think one of your oddest assignments must have been quieting a, a group of near-hysterical chorus girls in Folie Berger. Will you tell us about that? Oh, my golly. Well, in the old days, we used to work some pretty long hours. And these chorus girls were really having a tough time. They'd work like the Dickens all day, and they had great big straw hats on, like Chevalier. Uh, a straw hat, much bigger than Chevalier used to wear. I forget how many pounds it was. It was a great big hat. And at about two in the morning, these girls were getting pretty tired. And we finally finished. I used to help them a little bit because, uh, well, I know a little bit about dancing anyway. And uh, I used to help them as much as I could so they wouldn't have to rehearse much. So anyway, we finally finished. And uh, the girls were getting pretty hysterical. And they were... Uh, pretty much upset and a few of them sort of blew up and um, one of the assistant directors said you they seem to like you and you know them better than anybody else and you get along good with them will you go in there and try and quieten them down and uh, to walk into a dressing room that was made in a big corner of a stage corner of a big stage to walk in there with it from 80 to 100 and oh, it was at least 80 maybe there was 120 girls in different stages of hysteria and even different stages of dress that's quite an experience but uh, it's amazing how you forget the stages of dishabille uh, when you get into the hysteria part and it's quite a job to quieten down or help quieten down perhaps 80 girls fun to look back at Your reference to dancing reminds me that we've left out a little piece of your career to do with the palace. Do you want to go back and pick that up for us, Pev? Palace, palace. <laughs> well, that came about in a rather an odd manner. Uh, did a picture about uh, an act that was dying to get to the Palace, New York. That was the great old vaudeville house, the acme of all vaudeville actors. So very shortly after that, I went back east to see a football game. And uh, my wife, who was Lena Basquette, uh, 
by the way, she was the godless girl in The Godless Girl, uh, had uh, offers for different, different, different shows. So she asked me if, she, if I minded whether she took, uh, took a show on. I said, no, fine, go ahead. I got a vacation. So she had this act put together with six boys, and in some manner or other, uh, they couldn't change in time, and she needed one more, one more fellow. And she all of a sudden turned around at me and looked at me and said, well, wait a minute, you... And I had, I'd won about 22 cups dancing when I was a kid, so I knew a little bit about it. She said, what's the matter with you? So the first thing I knew, I was in the act. And uh, after a very short time of putting the act together, we played the Palace of New York. In other words, I'd, I'd just done this picture that showed what a long struggle people had to get to the palace. And here I am back there to see a football game, and the first thing I know in a month and a half, I'm playing the palace myself as a headline act, and I got quite a kick out of it. Of course, uh, uh, it, was, it didn't seem to me quite like a man's job. I wasn't used to it. I, sometimes I thought I was a little bit pansyish or something like that, but I didn't mean that anyway. <laughs> then there came an offer to do another picture, wasn't that it? You were somewhat loath to leave. Oh yeah, the uh, the mill. Uh, sent for me on a, I think it was a Thursday or a Friday to get on back and uh, get ready to start I think it was Madam Satan but I like you can't leave an you couldn't leave an act at the palace which the headline act in the middle of the week so I had to turn it down which I was sorry I had to do but uh, that's show business I guess then you must have uh, rejoined Mr. DeMille with um, this day and age Oh, yes. Right. Yeah, this day and age gets in there. Yep. And uh, that was one of the pictures DeMille made that uh, were sort of offbeat for him. It was uh, not one of the few he's made that wasn't quite his type, I think. Maybe I'm wrong. Let's set down something about your European uh, jaunt in 1931-32, Pev. Hmm, Europe. Oh, yes. Well, that started off in an odd manner, too. Uh, I was thoroughly well asleep at about 5 in the morning, and the phone rang. And somebody said, uh, this is Paris calling. And I thought it was Paris, California. There's a place not too far from here. And I thought somebody was calling me up to just wake me up and have fun. The phone call came in again. She said, this is Paris, France calling. Please don't hang up. I didn't. And uh, consequently, I went to Europe for nearly a year and uh, did a picture in France and another one in, in Hungary, in Budapest. Wonderful town, Budapest. And uh, that was very interesting, too, the way, the, different, the way they worked then. Now it's a different story, but uh, they were it was a little green then. Uh, the film that you made, uh, let me see now. In Paris, that was a film called Pantomus. Mm -hmm. And the director of that was... And Paul Feosh. Yes. And while you were at work on that, wasn't there another job that came through, or was that in Hungary, about oh, processing? Oh, then, no, then, then I went to Hungary, and uh, it so happened that just before I went over, I had done a little bit of, uh, of process work, which is background projection. And... Uh, there was a film there that came up, and they uh, it was very it was a very good idea for them to have this new thing, background projection or process. And uh, 
so they sort of said, fine, show us how to do it. And believe me, that was a job in a very odd language, which is Hungarian. It's very difficult to learn. And few spoke French, and it was quite a salad in them, uh, the different languages. But anyway, uh, and they used glass then, not the nice screens we have today. So I had to judge some ground glass just with my eye, have it made in Czechoslovakia and brought to Budapest. Well, the first glass they made, they made it too big and it wouldn't go through the tunnels, so they, they broke coming through the tunnels on the train. But they finally got one, and uh, while I was working on another show, I told them to get a camera to synchronize with a projection machine, which they told me that they could very easily. So now when I came to shoot this stuff, uh, they informed me that they had not been able to synchronize the camera with the projection machine. Of course, my hair rose quite a little bit, but luckily, I was using a debris camera, which is one you look through the film. You don't need a finder, you look right through the film. Of course, in the low-key stuff, it's a little hard to see through. But anyway, I had that camera, so all I could do was start the projection machine going, and then look through the film and start my camera going on and off, on and off, until I thought I had it in sync. And it was purely eye judgment. And uh, it's pretty hard to tell uh, if you're exactly in sync or not. But I'd watch and watch and nearly pull my eye out because we worked so long. But I watched and watched, and the minute I'd see the uh, screen begin to fade, I'd say cut, and remember where it was so that we could overlap that part with a close-up, and then go on again, and the minute, stopping and starting the camera till I thought it was in sync, and then watching it just like a cat for the first faint suggestion that they're beginning to get out of sync and stopping it. It worked, but believe me, and I think we worked 16 straight hours on it, and I thought my eyes were going to fall out when we finished that, but it, it did work. And I am of the opinion that is the first process in Europe. Of course, nobody knew what I was doing or why I was doing it, and it was quite a load in a lot of ways, but fun when you finished and it was all right. Now tell about the uh, strips that came from the development tests. Oh, <laughs> I went into the laboratory and um, I saw how they were developing to see what was going on with the negative. Excuse me, Pep, is this uh, Hungary or, or Paris? Or? This was this was in Budapest, in oh. Hungary. And uh, they, there was a test system then there, and uh, the tests of the negative would come out of this wall and run down in front of uh, a light panel. Uh, I'd say the light panel was about eight inches to a foot wide as these tests had come through in front of it. And a man would stand there and say, test number one, normal, test number two, uh, half a minute more, test number three, half a minute less, and so forth. But they went by this, this little light window pretty fast, and it dawned on me that if you ever missed one of them, all the rest would be wrong. So I immediately informed them not to develop my negative by what he saw flying by this window, to let it all go on down there and dry, and then we'd study it over a glass. And, of course, they thought I was crazy, but this is what I've been doing it for a long time. So, luckily enough, 
and waiting for it to come through. They were a little burned that they had to take the extra, well, let's see, half an hour, was it 40 minutes? I don't know. But we laid them all out, all the tests out on a, on a, on a, on a, on a light table, and we started. He was right on the first one. He was right on the second one. He was right on the third one. But evidently, he skipped the fourth one some way. And, of course, instead of being plus a half a minute, it should have been minus a half a minute, and everything was wrong from there on. So I proved my point. So from there on, they didn't judge them, didn't judge the negative, flying by a little light window. They let it go through the wash and, and the dry and, and uh, could really get a good look at it. And I think I helped them there, too. But they were all very cooperative when they saw you were right. Then there was a film you made in Hungary, wasn't there, called uh, April Showers? Yeah, that was with Annabella. That had a rather unusual story. Would you tell us a little bit about that? Well, April Showers, uh, she was a girl, let's see, that uh, was a love story, and a yeah, love scene out under a, a peach tree in bloom, and uh, peach tree in bloom, April, I suppose that's right, I don't know. But anyway... It was a big love scene, and you fade out, and later on she has a child, and uh, the child is growing up. She passes away and goes to heaven. Now she's looking down from heaven, and lo and behold, she sees her daughter in love with another fella, with in love with a fella her own age, nicely, and sure enough, they go out, and there's a love scene under the same old peach tree. Well, in not wanting the same thing to happen to a daughter that happened to her, she throws water over from heaven, which brings April showers down, and uh, the thing that happened to her didn't happen to her daughter because of the, the April showers. It was a cute idea. Are young players sometimes nervous on the set, Pev? Is it true that uh, you held the hand of one young starlet to her camera test? And, uh, <laughs> is it true that you married her? <laughs> That's correct. To answer your first question, uh, most young ones are, are nervous on the, at the start. This, this is probably normal, except perhaps when they're really young, they don't, they don't know enough to be nervous. But there's a certain age in there where they begin to realize what they're doing and, uh, and what they're trying to do, and it'll make them fairly nervous, and you can help them quite a lot. Now to the second question. Uh, yes, uh, I held a little girl's hand and shot her first test and her first three pictures, and, and uh, we finally got married. Uh, it was very interesting because I began to know her pretty well and knew all her little little tricks and perhaps faults and she was very quick to learn and uh, you're talking about Linda Darnell I presume oh, certainly yeah. <clears throat> and uh, funny thing about her she uh, is arrived at a point where she's a very good photographer herself and uh, I think she's much better than I am at what you would call amateur stuff uh, she can take a camera and knows what kind of film she wants and and, and she's really very good. In fact, I even showed her some stuff about 3D. And uh, she's she's very good cameraman, let alone a good actress. We used to have a lot of fun. I used to give her some signals on what to do and what not to do, and, and she began to turn to me quite a little on 
What what sort of thing would you uh, tell us a little more about this uh, signal setup of yours? Oh, what would she be doing that you would want her to correct, for instance? Well, she had a little habit once in a while of nodding her head as she said different different lines. And uh, if we ever did it again, and the director wanted it again, I'd tip her off that her head was wobbling, nodding too much. By uh, you know, cue arranged between us, I'd scratch my head with my right hand or pull out my handkerchief and wipe my brow or something would tip her off to one or two little mannerisms. And of course, if anything was quite noticeable, I'd go up to her and, and say something. I might pretend I was talking about a light or something like that so that nobody would know what I was doing and uh, make it look like it was all photographic, but I'd be actually telling her something about the tempo or the speed or something like that. There was one tough assignment that you had in Pride of the Marines. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, that's really a photographic, uh, photographic job there in, in every way. They had some... Uh, stock shots and then from the stock shots we worked outside in a jungle and then that cut immediately to some inside shots of a jungle so when you try to match stock shots to in, uh, exterior shots that you shoot and then go on into interior of the same jungle that gets to be quite a problem but Lucky for me, it all came out very smooth, smoothly, and quite a few people didn't know which was which. So that made me happy. There are two of your films that I feel should have been cited with awards that I'm not aware were. Yeah. One of those was Winterset, and the other was The Greatest Show on Earth. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, Winterset... Uh, it was unlucky lucky that they didn't have a print to show, except I think a print that was really off the cutting room floor, and it was so scratched up that it was pretty hard for anybody to judge, and they sort of couldn't give an award on it. However, it won the European Award that year, and I appreciate that. And the other one you're talking about, I'm sure, is the greatest show on earth. Uh, George Barnes, God bless him, and my, myself uh, made. Uh, we won the Golden Globe Award that year, and I never forget while sitting... Uh, at the, uh, at the table, after receiving the Golden Globe, I turned to George and said, uh, it's funny we didn't get a nominated for the Oscar. And George turned to me and he said, uh, well, to tell you the truth, I forgot to turn it in. His wife's head immediately spun and looked at me, and I looked kind of sheepish and said, well, to tell you the truth, George, I didn't turn it in either, uh, which was pretty stupid because I think the greatest show on earth would have had a very good chance of the Oscar that year. We were just two stupid boys not forgetting to turn it in. I think I was away on location at the time. Let's hear something about the problems of working in 3D, Pep. Yeah, the problems of 3D. Well, see, I did three of those. House of Wax, Charges Feather River, and Murder in the Rue Morgue. The thing, as it first started out, the, uh, the Gunsberg camera, cameras, the interocular was, in other words, the cameras were a little more than three inches apart, which made it quite difficult in many ways. And as just about the time that Warners themselves made some fine cameras that we could 
that the interocular was uh, uh, flexible and we could really get as much three dimension as we wanted to or almost as little as we wanted to that's when they stopped making 3D there were many problems in it at the start and uh, in fact I think I read the other day where somebody's trying to do it on TV uh, I still think there's a lot to 3D if uh, if you saw a good play and they didn't hurt your eyes and and uh, and you had nice comfortable glasses that you bought yourself for two dollars perhaps I think 3D would still be very interesting. There were many problems in it, though, and uh, as I say, about the time that we conquered those problems, camera-wise, then they stopped making 3D. You've spoken of the difficulties of lighting leading ladies who are no longer young, Pev. Would you expand that point a little for us? Uh, difficulties of lighting leading they are. Well, I'll give you an idea. Uh, first of all, we'll take a nice portrait of yourself, a nice uh, nice still picture. They take a still, they take perhaps 24, of which you choose three or four. Those are retouched. Then they are put on flat paper if it's a contrasty negative, contrasty paper if it's a flat negative. And if you took in too much, they can crop off different pieces. In other words, they can compose it, retouch it, practically repaint it. In a portrait, in a still portrait, but now you come to a motion picture. You do not retouch. You do not print on different kinds of paper. That's it. So it has to be done pretty well right. After all, everybody gets older, and... Uh, 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 you wouldn't suggest going too too close on somebody that wants to look supposed to be 23 or 4 and they're 35 or 8. Uh, the way you light them and the way you diffuse them, you can't diffuse too much because all of a sudden from a fairly sharp shot to a very diffused close-up, you might wonder who it was. And uh, uh, there are difficulties and you naturally try to shoot the best side of their face and uh, uh, there are a lot of tricks, and they're usually charming and very ready, ready to help in every manner. And, of course, when they're that way, you just break your neck to do your very best because they're a grand bunch of gals. You said to me earlier in conversation, Pev, that there are three ways to make pictures. Tell us about that. Oh, well, more or less, there's three types of pictures. I'd say perhaps two are fairly easy, and the other one is very difficult. The easy ones, more or less, this is not a definite rule, but are the very quickies that, uh, uh, the, the ones that are really shot in a hurry, and nobody cares much how things look. I call them, walk them and talk them and see their faces. And mother, did you get them in? Did you hear them? Did you see them? That's it. Shoot it over here. And, that, and away you go. The other end of the scale would be the big epics, which have to be perfect. Uh, then you have time to make them perfect. And they've got to look good, and they do. But the tough ones <coughs> are the ones that are, there's quite a bit of money spent on them, but they want to go quite fast and have them look as good as the big epics. That gets a little bit difficult. You've been working just recently, have you not, in this new uh, Cinemiracle process? 
That's correct, George. I have uh, the Cinemiracle is, is really quite something. It's talk about big screen. This is a really big. You'll have to see a screen 40 feet high and 100 feet wide. And uh, it's got quite a problem because it uh, shoots at about a 143 degree angle. And that takes in almost as much as you can see out of what you would call the corner of your eye or the secondary vision. Average person's vision is around 160 degrees, 165. And Cinemiracle takes in only 143. That's, that's pretty wide. And it makes you think a lot because everything seems to be in. If you go into a room, we're, we're testing these things now at Warner's. And uh, to make a regular normal picture out of it rather than a travelogue idea, and when you go into a normal room and you get the ceiling, the floor, and both sides in, it, there's a lot of problems to try to get light in the right places rather than just flat. And uh, those things will all be worked out, but we've had so many things thrown at us in the last 15 years of photography, I guess we'll overcome this one too. Well, your remark reminds me that you've worked in a good many processes. Would you list those for us, Pat? Processes. Well, we started off at black and white. And uh, then we had some color. Then the soundtrack track, track came. No, I'll try that again. Ooh. The soundtrack came in and cut off quite a bit of the left side of the picture. And then the to get a, a wider picture, a wider looking picture, I cut off the top and some off the bottom. And then you began to run into a point where there wasn't quite enough film to photograph on yet. In fact, it's getting down more toward a 16 all the time than it is a 35. Then there was Cinemascope, and uh, done that, and uh, VistaVision, done that, now Cinemiracle, and uh, I don't think I ever mentioned it to you, but to have my hand in everything, I've done a little bit on TV. In, in, in fact, I've uh, done a few Gale Storm shows and a few telephone times, and to have my finger in everything, I've even done some TV commercials. So that's a fair scope of quite a few different types of photography. Well, I should say it was. Could you list the films for me, Pev, that you feel represent your work at its peak? Mm, that's a little difficult. Let me see. i got to go back a bit, don't I? Well, let's start with The King of Kings. And... Uh, Winter set, and then we'll get into the talkies. Dynamite, that was the first one. The Count of Monte Cristo, The House of Rothschild, hmm. in old Chicago, Alexander's Ragtime Band, Life with Father, let me see, Night and Day, 3Ds, The House of Wax, hmm, let's go to the King Richard. And the Crusaders, the greatest show on earth, and the Ten Commandments. I think that is a fair group. I suppose I've forgotten many good ones, but I don't think of them at the moment. This interview has taken place on April 1, 1958, at the Beverly Hills Hotel, and we're very, very grateful for your cooperation, Pep. More than you know, I'll use the title of a picture I photographed once. I'll say, thanks a million.
Oh, George, a very important postscript. Very important that I... I don't know how it got away from me. There's a thing we've been using called film all these years. And a terrifically important part has been played by an outfit called Eastman. The problems we've run into and all these different and varied processes, we've had problems by the ton. And I've always been in very close contact with a group of fine fellows from the Eastman outfit, like Blackburn, Gibson, and Corsair. And our problems were thrown at them, and they in turn threw them back to Rochester. And they in turn, I'm sure, worked night and day to get us what was necessary in filming these many different things, different quality, different contrast, different this, different speeds. And as we've had it thrown at us, we've in turn thrown it at the Eastman Kodak Company. And I, I don't know how to thank them for our profession, but they've made us what we are. And again and again and again, hats off to a swell outfit. Again, thanks a million.